You're waiting. That was a very quick wrap-up of your greetings. That was really quick. You guys are ready. Well, I'm Derek. Um, we're glad to have you here today at, at Pillar Church. Normally, as you know, at least those that are here with us regularly, you know, Pastor Kanan brings the word, or if not Kanan, then Eric. And if not Eric, then Marge or someone else. So it's a perfect storm of unavailability for me to be preaching. Um, but I love to do it because I don't get to do it very often, and I'm excited. Um, this is my excited face right here. It's as energized and as uh, visually expressive as I get. So um, the good news is that the Word of God is powerful uh, and clear and speaks uh, speaks clearly to us, and so I'm going to lean heavily on that today. So uh, let's uh, let's pray uh, very quickly and, and get get into it. God, thank you, thank you for all the things I don't even know to thank you for. Thank you for Jesus. I'm excited to lift up your son high today as the way, the truth, the life. Would you use me, Lord, as a mouthpiece only, as a vehicle only? If there's anything I plan to say that shouldn't be said, would you prevent it? If there's anything that I wasn't going to say that I should, would you make it said? Lord, would you um, increase so that I may decrease? I pray that whoever's listening, wherever they are, that they would all leave that everyone leaves, whether it's online watching or here, that they all leave a child of God. And if they're already a child of God, that they leave refreshed, challenged, whatever's appropriate, Lord, but that nobody leaves here the same that they came in. Not because of my words or presentation, but because, because you were clear, because you um, were impactful because you showed up because you had mercy on us and that you you gave us the grace of your of wisdom and knowledge of you that you just filled us up that that would be the reason lord and it's in jesus name i pray amen so in 722 bc yep going there assyria conquered the 10 tribes of the northern israelite kingdom and then in a series of three invasions from 605 to 586 BC, Babylon destroyed the southern Israelite kingdoms, which is Judah. That was all together, that's all 12 tribes of Israel. So collectively, these events signified the fall of the kingdom of Israel, the once united kingdom of Israel. Things looked pretty bleak for God's people. Well, centuries earlier, um, God had disinherited before even Israel even existed, he had disinherited the other nations. We now call them Gentiles at what's called the Babel, the Tower of Babel incident. So whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, things between you and God seemed rocky to say the least. For 400 years, what is known as the intertestamental period between the Testaments, God was silent. But then he sent Jesus born in the line of David to a virgin, just as the prophets had foretold. Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature, as the Bible puts it, until around the age of 30 when he was baptized and began his public ministry. So when we come to our text this morning, Jesus has been hard at work in his ministry. He knows his time to die is approaching. He's with his disciples. He washes their feet. He's teaching them. And he predicts that Peter will deny him three times. It's, it's all pretty somber. 
And then here's the conversation that he continues with his disciples in John 14, 1 through 17. And we'll put that on the screen for you. It says, and this is the word of God. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go to pre- If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive." Because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. That's the word of God. Now, we went through all of that for context. But today, I really want to zero in on verse 6. It says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So this is one of several I am sayings in John's gospel. Elsewhere in the book of John, he says, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate, or in some translations, the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life, and I am the true vine. And the use of the phrase I am is significant because that's the name, the personal name that God, Yahweh, uses for himself. It's a name so sacred that the Israelites wouldn't even utter it. And Jesus is claiming that name for himself. So one of the first points that Jesus is making here right off the bat in telling us that he is the way, the truth, the life is that he is deity. He is the son of God. So everybody turn to your neighbor now and say, Jesus is God. I don't think you guys were ready for me to do that. So I'm going to say that again. Everybody turn to your neighbor. If you don't have a neighbor, just say it back to me, but say it. Jesus is God. So looking now at verse 6, note that Jesus uses three different terms, way, truth, life. And forgive me, I'm a lawyer by day. That's my day job. So this is, I'm getting real nerdy here, but this is what, you know, I do for a living. So just, just bear with me. But he uses three words here, which indicates that he didn't, that, he, that each word is, in, is intended to have significant individualized meaning. Otherwise, he would have just used one word, right? So we, we look at these three words, the way, truth, and the life. 
And the word way here refers to a mode or a means. Think of a road. And in context here, it's, it's really as if it's saying Jesus is the way because he is the truth and the life. A 19th century English preacher named C.H. Spurden said, Jesus is the way to God, he is the truth to guide us, and he is the life that enables us to run in the road. But the three words, they, although they have individual meaning, they also have collective meaning. See, all three words are qualified by the next sentence, which says, no one comes to the Father except through me. So the meaning of the three words, way, truth, life, are all qualified by, they're informed by how they contribute to describing Jesus as the one through whom we are able to go to the Father. Well, today I want to look at four takeaways. I know pastors are supposed to do three of them or whatever, you know, the three points, but I've got four takeaways from this truth that, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And we'll, I want to tell you now, we're going to spend more time on the first truth. And I tell you that now because I don't want you to get to point two and start looking at the clock and think, we have three more of these? Oh, my gosh. So the first one's going to take a lot longer than the, the next three. So our first takeaway is that we can know the Father. God the Father is knowable. Recall the historical context that we just discussed. The kingdoms of Israel had fallen if you were a Jew, you were by now living under Roman rule, and God had seemingly gone radio silent. And with respect to Gentiles, which, by the way, is probably all of us in the room if you're not an Israelite, the Apostle Paul puts it this way in his letter to the Ephesians, and we can throw that up on the screen for you. He says, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So Jesus, through his sacrificial life, death, resurrection, obtained for us access to God the Father. But there's another sense in which God, Jesus rather, allows us to know the Father. He reveals the Father. In one of my favorite books, it's called Delighting in the Trinity. I recommend it. The author, Dr. Michael Reeves, writes this. He says that God is a mystery, but not in the alien abductions, things that go, that, things that go bump in the night sense. Certainly not in the who can know why bother sense. God is a mystery in that who he is and what he is like are secrets, things we would have not worked out by ourselves. But God has revealed himself to us through Jesus. Thus, God is not some piece of inexplicable nonsense. He's not a square circle. No, because God has revealed himself, we can understand who he is. That's not to say we can exhaust our knowledge of God or comprehend and wrap our brains around him. That's too much for us. But to know God is to know an eternal and personal God of infinite beauty interest and fascination. He is a God we can know and forever grow to know better. In Psalm 27, 4, David writes, one thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. My sisters, my brothers, my friends, you can know God. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. 
Y'all with me? I don't know. I don't know about that. Are y'all with me? All right, all right. Okay. In addition to granting us access to the Father and revealing the Father, Jesus also is a visible image of God. So turn to your neighbor and say, when I see Jesus, I see God. In the book of Colossians, the Apostle Paul explains that in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Paul says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Elsewhere in 2 Corinthians, Paul describes God, Jesus as the image of God. The author of the book of Hebrews writes that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. It's like a lamp. Jesus radiates from the Father much like a, a light radiates from a lamp. They're inseparable. You turn the lamp on, you get light. You turn the lamp off, you have no light. There's a, a pastor named Dane Ortland who puts it this way. He says, Jesus is the embodiment of who God is. He is the tangible epitomization of God. Jesus Christ is the visible manifestation of the invisible God. In him, we see heaven's heart, his eternal heart walking around on two legs in time and space. When we see the heart of Christ, then throughout the four gospels, we are seeing the very compassion and tenderness of who God himself most deeply is. You know, as modern readers, some of you may have a hard time with the God that you read about in the Bible uh, in certain passages, particularly maybe like, say, in the Old Testament. And I, and I can resonate with that if I'm being honest with you. You know, you read of the sacrificial system, moral codes, bloodshed, and you think, I, I just can't understand that God. I, I, I don't understand how to reconcile what I'm reading with other passages of in the in other passages of scripture where it talks about love and kindness and forgiveness and, and so forth i mean there's a lot to say there but i want to say this today which is that that god he made a way for you to know him and that way is jesus if you want to understand the old testament god that one that makes you scratch your head start with jesus there's also the doctrine of the Trinity. It's a very important doctrine. It teaches us that God is one God, but three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Right? Well, you want to understand the Trinity? Start with Jesus. Notice that you see references to all three persons of the Trinity in our passage that we read earlier. You saw Jesus the Son referring to, to God the Father. And then toward the end of the passage, you saw the Spirit, where Jesus said, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that's the Spirit, to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you, and that him is the Spirit. Notice the Spirit is not an it. Spirit is he. I just want to do something here. It's a little unorthodox. It may land wrong, but I'm going to try it anyway, which is that we, I just feel like we should just stop and give the Holy Spirit some love. Can we do that? Can you guys just clap? Like, can we just lift up the Holy Spirit for a minute? Just give him praise. Tell him, we love you, Holy Spirit. We want you, Holy Spirit. We want you to change our lives. We want you to be here with us when we worship. We want you to work in our city. We don't want to do anything without you. We love the Spirit. 
And there's one very important point that I want to stop and extract here. Some people seek God by starting with science and creation or logic and reasoning, and they kind of work from there and kind of whittle their way down, right? Like there's an intelligent design, and so there had to be a creator, and if there was a creator, then there had to be, or, or like maybe with moral reasoning, like there's, there's good and evil, that implies that there's an objective law, which implies that there's a lawgiver. And that's all really cool stuff. And I have, I've been impacted by, by logic and science, and I am all about that. But what if in your quest to know God, you start with Jesus? You'll see that God's most foundational identity, it's not king, it's not ruler, it's not creator, although he is all of those things. He is first and foremost a father. And going back to the book I referenced that I liked so much earlier, Delighting in the Trinity, it says that, well, just the fact, and I'm quoting it now, it says, well, just the fact that Jesus is the son really says it all. Being a son means he has a father. The God he reveals is first and foremost a father. I am the way and the truth and the life, he says. No one comes to the father except through me. That is who God has revealed himself to be. Not first and foremost creator or ruler, but father. Perhaps the way to appreciate this best is to ask what God was doing before creation. Jesus tells us explicitly in John 17, 24, Father, he says, you love me before the creation of the world. And that is the God revealed by Jesus Christ before he ever created, before he ever ruled the world, before anything else. This God was a father loving his son. Think about how this impacts our view of God. You know, it's one thing to serve a good and powerful king, and we do. But when the king is your dad, you know, that has the power to really make your view of him so much more intimate and special and safe. John tells us, see what kind of love the father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Look, I know that for some of you, this idea of God as Father is not an attractive thought. Uh, and it's certainly not safe. Because your earthly father abandoned you, abused you, just straight up failed you. And that's hard, and I'm sorry. The reason, though, that those wounds are so deep, that it hurts so badly is because you were made to be a child to a father who loves you, protects you, provides for you, leads you. And that is what Jesus is trying to tell you. I am the way, the truth, the life. You can come to the father, to our father, through me. And our father will never abandon you. He'll never forsake you. He'll never traumatize you. He'll never let you down. And he will never stop loving you. So everything we've been discussing so far was unpacking that first takeaway. The one that we can know the Father. Jesus grants us access to the Father. He reveals the Father. And he images the Father. So I want to move on now to those last three remaining takeaways. Which, as I said, won't take as long as the first. But our second takeaway is that Jesus, not Muhammad, not Confucius, nor anyone else, made a way for you 
and is the truth and the life. Luke writes in the book of Acts that there is no salvation and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus is quoted in Matthew as saying, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. I know that's not popular now. Um, but the truth is it's never really been popular Truth, by definition, is exclusive. Not so much in terms of excluding people, but in terms of excluding false ideas, inconsistent ideas as false, right? If you say, some, if you say the sky is blue, you are saying the sky is not red. And listen, telling people anything other than that Jesus, the reality that Jesus is the way and the truth to life, while it may resemble something like kindness or compassion or patience at the time, Ultimately, if we really allow that message to stick, then we're just creating a false sense of security in those we love. And I'm guilty of this. And, you know, if I can just be very vulnerable for a minute, um, you know, I think it's because it's I really don't think it's because I'm ashamed of the gospel. You know, I, re, I hear Paul and he says that in, in Romans 1 16 from not ashamed of the gospel for it's the power of salvation for those that, who believe. I really do believe that I cling to that. I'm committed to that truth. But if I'm honest, I just there's a lot of people who claim to be Christians in America in particular. And they just well, they. They embarrass me. Um, and I know I'm flawed and I'm sinful in my own right. And maybe it's just completely messed up that I even feel this way. But I've just, I've seen people, you know, be so harsh, even bully people for truth, for doctrine. You know, I've seen others that, that things are Christian, but they're, they're just safe, cultural, social things, you know, there's no sacrifice. There's no sense of like, I can I should sacrifice my comfort for the love of others. It's, I get to live however I want this side of heaven and just put the Christian stamp on it. And then Christian leaders are dropping like flies. So I think that there's a sense, if I'm honest, recognizing my own depravity, that sometimes I hesitate to really drive home that point that Jesus is the way, because I just I don't want to be associated with people in our current culture that call themselves Christians. Can anybody else resonate with that? But even so, think about it. If you have a friend who rejects the reality of gravity, are you going to support their decision to jump off the Frost Bank Tower? You're not. You're not. You're going to tell them the truth about gravity. You're going to say, man, if you jump off that building, you're going to die. Because you're not gonna be worried about offending them primarily or them associating you with a pro-gravity group or whatever. You're gonna tell them the truth. The key here, I think, is perspective. At least it is for me. If you take a human-centric perspective, if you make people the starting point, then you're immediately gonna ask, why one way? Why would a good God do that to us? Give us this one way. And certainly, if we're under the impression that another human came up with the idea that there's one way, then I'll join you in saying, well, you know, who are you to give me the one way? But if we start with God, 
if there is God, if we accept God exists, God is who he says he is, and then we see ourselves in light of who he is, you know, to put it crass, God knows, God owes you no more than I, you owe a cockroach in your kitchen. Like the, the distance between me and a cockroach is like this, and the distance between me and God is like this. So if I keep that perspective that I'm a cockroach and God is infinitely more than a human, then man, the fact that he made a way for you, the fact that he made a way for us, it's game changing. It's the best news in the history of the world. And that leads us to our third takeaway. Jesus is not just the way for you. He's the way for your neighbor, for your family, for your uh, coworkers, for your community, for our community. The, everyone who you love needs Jesus. And it's, it's, it's fitting that, that um, Armando read from Romans 10 earlier when he was praying for me because I had that in this, this text today. So we can put that on the screen. It says, for there's no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Hear this, though. The way that we communicate the way is critically important. You know, we alluded to that earlier a little bit. For one thing, John writes in his book of 1 John that if you do not love your brothers and sisters, then you don't know God. He says you're a liar to say you know God and you don't love your brother and sister. Those are John's words. It's like God is saying, don't act like you know me. If you're intent on carrying out racism, dehumanizing my image bearers, denying help to your brothers and sisters in need time and time again, over the course of your life, take my name out of your mouth. John writes, um, and you can put this on the screen. It says, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us love in word, not, sorry, let us love not in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Then in Matthew 25, we'll put this up too. Jesus foretells that one day he will tell the unrighteous, I was hungry for I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me naked and you did not clothe me sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, truly, I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. We see Jesus calling us here to love people holistically. If we do not love our brother or sister who bears God's image as in right in front of us in the flesh, if our heart is not moved to care for their whole person, their soul, and their body, then we are deceiving ourselves and thinking that we actually love God or that we actually are being obedient by shouting scripture like an incantation. Don't get me wrong. God can absolutely use you to share the gospel message in an encounter with the stranger without any need of prior history with them or credibility 
and he can save that person on the spot through the proclamation of the gospel. Absolutely. What I'm saying is it's more likely day in and day out, week in and week out, that your opportunity to share the gospel will be with people that you know, people who know of your life. Do you love your neighbor? Do you have a sincere, imperfect, hear me, it's going to be imperfect, but do you have a sincere commitment to walk in holiness, to obey God? If not, then when we talk about Jesus or advocate for Christianity, the effectiveness of our message will be hindered. As a church, corporately and individually, we must consider our public witness. There's a pastor in Chicago named Charlie Dates. He's one of my favorite people to listen to preach. I, I recommend you podcast, look him up. He calls this our affection in action, and I love that. Jesus said, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So we see that we should be marked by love for fellow believers, and we should also be marked for love of the world, and we should be marked by a particular concern and commitment to caring for the marginalized and the vulnerable. Those are all not side issues. Those are not peripheral issues. Jesus is, the, the, the writers of these, of the, that God used and God speaking to us through his word is telling us that's part and parcel to knowing who he is. And our fourth and final takeaway is this. And if you haven't heard anything I've said, I want this to stick. Actually, even if you heard everything I said, I still want it to stick. You know what I mean. If Jesus is the way, the truth, the life, then you are not. Stop trying to earn God's love. Stop relying on your own good deeds for acceptance. We usually equate the term self-righteousness with arrogance, right? That's kind of how we think of what that term means. But it actually describes any effort to base your righteousness on yourself, self-righteousness. In Ephesians 2, Paul tells us that we were dead in our sins. Dead people can't wake themselves up. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And he says, for by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. In Romans, Paul explains that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, that is, he purchased you, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, a propitiation like to appease or satisfy, to be received by faith. And then in uh, Colossians, I love how Paul puts it. He says that Christians have been forgiven all our trespasses, that is, sins, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. If you will put your trust in Christ, your sins, the deepest, darkest ones, the ones nobody knows about, the ones you don't think you can tell anybody, all your flaws that you're so embarrassed by that you don't want anyone to know about, all, all, all of your sins are forgiven. They're nailed to the cross. John says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Jesus gives you his perfect righteous record so that when the Father looks at you, he sees righteousness.
This is called the great exchange. He took your unrighteousness and handled that. He gave you his righteousness. Stop being self-righteous. It's exhausting. Jesus invites you today. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus is the way, he's the truth, and he's the life. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you looked out and saw us before we were ever born. You knew of us, and you, you said, I want, them, I want to know them. I want to live with them. I want them to live with me. And they're going to mess it up. But I'm going to do it anyway. I'm going to endure all the heartache anyway. Thank you for sending Jesus, Lord, to make things right. Thank you that he gave us access to you, Father. Thank you that he is a picture of you, that he reveals you. Thank you, Lord, that we can know you, Father. Thank you that there, that there is solid footing truth you. Thank you, Father, that those of us who are weary, who are exhausted from performance-based righteousness, we're, we're tired of being, maybe, maybe for some, they're tired of being criticized. No matter what they do, they can't please anybody. Maybe some of the critic is their own voice. Maybe it's a combination. Lord, meanwhile, we know that the enemy says he comes to steal, kill, and destroy. So there's an active enemy. Our primary enemy is not humans. It's not other people. He tells us it's flesh, it's flesh and blood. It's not flesh and blood. It's, 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 it's supernatural. Lord, would you today make things plain to everybody in the room what you need and want them to be made plain to the world? I can't do that. You can do it. We pray that in this time that you would impact people, that they would be convicted of sin and would repent. And the beauty of repentance is that it ends in joy. When we repent, we know that you have forgiven us for, for all of sin and for the short of glory. God, we we're all in the same boat. But in Jesus, you have made a way. You have forgiven us. You have set us free. But we be energized by that truth that what we did two weeks ago, what we've been struggling with in the past four years, but we don't think we can tell anyone that we can tell it to you. And you will forgive us, cleanse us from all unrighteousness, and help us turn from that and worship you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.